0: Welcome to Stanford Innovation Lab. I'm Tina Seelig, Professor of the Practice in the Department of Management Science and Engineering at Stanford University. This podcast is designed to give you a taste of the topics we explore in our classes on innovation and entrepreneurship. In this pilot episode of Stanford Innovation Lab, Alberto gives advice on how to fail smart. His lessons are based on his experience founding two companies and working as an early employee at Google and Sun Microsystems. He covers a diverse set of important topics, including how you can execute your business plans perfectly, but still fail dramatically if your plan is flawed, how startups are systems that need stress in order to grow, and finally, why we should pay careful attention to the baby dragons in Game of Thrones. I'm a huge fan of Alberto's work and hope you find his insights as meaningful as I have. Welcome, Alberto.
1: Hi, Tina. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: So, Alberto, can you tell us a little bit about your background and how you came to be an expert on avoiding failures?
1: Sure. It was not by choice. Uh, In fact, for the first uh, part of my career, I thought that failure was something that only applied to other people. So let me explain. The the first startup I joined was a little-known company called Sun Microsystems. I joined. We were all in one building very small. Uh, To make a long story short, it became uh, a very successful Fortune 500 company. So I thought, wow, this is really easy. So after working at uh, Sun Microsystem, I did my first startup as a co-founder and we raised $3 million in VC funding. And 18 months later, we received an offer to be acquired for $100 million. So I thought, this is really easy. And I'm actually quite good at this. So then I got lucky again, and I joined Google, uh, again, at the time, a little-known startup. And we kind of all know how that went. And in fact, I was in charge of the group that launched Google AdWords. So I thought, this is just so easy. I I don't understand all these people failing. But then, uh, failure bit me. Uh, And as you will see, I decided to bite it back. Uh, So after Google, I decided, okay, I'm going to do another startup. And this time, instead of just raising a puny 3 million and going out at 100 million, I'm gonna raise 30 million and go out at a billion. So I did my second startup as a co-founder. We raised $6 million in Series A. And over a period of five years, we raised $25 million. We built this product that won every possible award in the industry, was a software development tool. We, I thought I was golden. I thought I was the Italian Steve Jobs, right? Stefano Jobini, <laughs> uh, if you will. So I, I thought everything was going to go perfect, and all these awards, it couldn't fail, and yet, fail it did.
0: Wow, that must have been incredibly devastating. Let's dive into that a little deeper and think about how one might prevent big failures when tackling big challenges. To give the audience something to think about, Let's listen to a few clips of past speakers in our Entrepreneurial Thought Leader lecture series to hear their thoughts on failure. The first clip is from Judy Estrin, a serial entrepreneur.
2: And what does risk mean? We're all talking about risk these days. Risk means the vulnerability, the willingness to fail, the willingness to try something, knowing that you might fail. And uh, what goes along with this is learning from failure, because nobody wants to fail, but if you're going to fail, um, you need to be willing to. You need to understand how to take lessons from that failure, and any innovative organization needs to make it okay to fail. Because if it's not okay to fail, nobody will ever try anything. And so this this notion of intelligent risk. An attitude towards failure is one of the biggest, I would say, make or break characteristics of an organization or a culture. The reason why Silicon Valley has thrived is because you can fail here and you'll get funded again.
0: So, Alberto, Judy emphasizes the point that failure is a normal part of the entrepreneurial process. Can you talk about that?
1: Yes, of course, as we know, most startups that get funded do fail, right? And here's, by the way, I I love the part where she says, you can fail and get funded again. That's exactly what happened to me. At the end of our five-year failure, $25 million of VC funding down the drain, one of the lead VCs came to me, put his arms around my shoulder and said, Alberto, if you think an MBA is expensive, we just paid $25 million to educate you. So the next idea for a startup, you better come to us first, capiche? Well, he didn't say capiche, but you get the idea, which to me is so different from the culture that you would have in most parts of the world, where if you fail, you're pretty much the ratio of the book. So Judy's absolutely right about that point.
0: So Alberto, this is all well and good, uh, but how do you get people comfortable with failure? This is a huge problem. I travel all over the world and I see that people are really afraid to fail. And let's listen to a short clip from Astro Teller at Google X, which is Google's innovation engine, and hear how he goes about getting people comfortable with failure.
3: When one of our projects that actually has like a non-trivial number of people, at least a few people full-time on it, ends their project, and they end their projects, I'll tell you a story about that. We bring them up on stage. We have a bunch of Xers here. They've seen this multiple times. We bring them up on stage, and we say, this team is ending their project today. They have done more in ending their project in this quarter than any of you did to further innovation at X in the last quarter. And then all of you, especially the first time you hear this, are going to feel a little ripped off. Like, wait a second. They're failing. They're calling it a day. I'm working my ass off. How come they're up on stage? That seems kind of unfair. Then I say, and we're giving them bonuses. (laughs) You say, wait, I'm not getting a bonus. Why are they getting a bonus? They're killing their project. I'm actually succeeding. Mine's still going. You know what, guys? Take a vacation. And when you come back, the world's your oyster. You'll find some new project to start, or you can pick which project to jump into, depending on which one's going best. At this point, all of you are a little mystified if this is your first time through this, and feeling quite ripped off. But social norms are incredibly powerful. People will do horrible, horrible things to each other if you set the social norms appropriately. They will also do incredibly innovative, creative, uh, expressive, transparent things if you create the right norms for it. By the 10th time that we do this, it's normal. I don't even have to remind people anymore when we stand them up that they should get a huge round of applause and that everyone there should be looking up to the people who ended the projects. But have you ever heard of somebody actually getting rewarded? Because if I tell you to fail fast, are you going to run out if you're part of our organization and fail fast just because I said it? No. You're going to be thinking what happens if I fail fast? Am I gonna get fired? I mean I'm gonna lose all the people who are reporting to me, right? So then I suck and then I'll have to like go tell, you know, like my friends I was kinda demoted. Am I gonna get my bonus at the end of the year? Well, like, what happens to my compensation or my my opportunity for promotion? Are those things all out the window? This is the difference between the lip service and the actual emotional paths of least resistance, creating the feeling that failing fast would actually get you what you want instead of getting you the opposite of what you want.
0: So, Alberto, what do you think about what Astro Teller is saying?
1: Well, Astro is spot on. You know, in a Google culture of not punishing failure is great. And going to the next step above and actually celebrating failure is also good. But Astro, as he, as he points out, there are many ways to fail, right? You want to fail uh, well, and you want to fail fast. In fact, I like to fail Ferrari fast. We cannot bundle all failure together, right? Because some failures actually should not be celebrated, right? Some failures where you've taken five years, built a lot of assumptions, and you just ignore the market you just went in your own little uh, world assuming that you would be successful when you launch projects like that and they fail. I don't think those those are cause for celebration, right? They're cause for actually doing some little soul searching thinking maybe the next time we should try to make contact with the market after six months, not six years.
0: Brilliant. In fact, to build on that, I have a clip from Eric Reese, who talks about his experience failing and the fact that he learned very, very similar lessons.
4: I know none of you would do a plan like this, but maybe you have a friend who's attempted this uh, or may be thinking about attempting this in the future. So uh, let this be a lesson because we did something I call achieving failure. <laughs> uh, we, we burned through about $40 million building this company, and, and after the five years of stealth R&D, uh, we failed uh, pretty, pretty spectacularly. But what you've got to understand, nothing I say the rest of this lecture is going to make any sense at all, if you don't grasp, that we didn't fail to execute the plan. That was not our issue we had a flawless execution. So we built a really amazing product, really compelling technology. We did hire the best and the brightest and we had a great launch. I mean, We were in New York Times, Wall Street Journal, CNN, and I had all the right bloggers saying this is the future of the Internet. And we just had one small problem, which is that uh, although we got all these mainstream customers to try our product, none of them liked it. And so we couldn't convert all that energy into a workable business. And so you ask, well, how could all those smart people, having worked on it for such a long time, have come up with such a bad plan? It's because we were crippled by what I call shadow beliefs. These are beliefs that were universally shared within the company, yet were never, ever spoken out loud or ever written down. I'll share three of them uh, with you right now. The first, that we know what customers want, which you have to believe if you're going to devote 120% of your time and energy into building a company. But the thing is uh, entrepreneurs have this ability, we call it the reality distortion field. It's the ability to get uh, people in their vicinity to believe things as if they were true that are not, strictly speaking, literally true. Uh, And one of those things is that people right now desperately need this new technology that we're building inside the reality distortion field. And I don't want you to get the idea that there's something wrong with that. All entrepreneurs have it, good entrepreneurs, bad entrepreneurs. The issue is that there's another category of people that can use the reality distortion field, and we call them crazy people. (laughs) So if you want to create a cult, it's extremely useful to have the reality distortion field. So, the crux of the issue is how do you know if you're in a startup? And for those who are in a startup today, well, I know you're not in this situation, but maybe you have a friend. Think about whether the vision that you're following is the vision of a brilliant startup founder or of a crazy person. We'll get to how to tell the difference in a moment. Uh, number two, that we can accurately predict the future, which is something that crazy people sometimes do say, also startup founders. Um, you know, you got to have a business plan if you're a startup, and the business plan has to have a spreadsheet in the back in which you explain to your investors that in year 5 you'll make 100 million dollars. Anybody going to admit to having that spreadsheet in the back of their plan? Now, I have nothing wrong with having a spreadsheet in your business plan. That's a good idea. The issue is what happens when we start to believe those projections are literally true, like we're Nostradamus and we know what's going to happen. In startup number 1, we had the spreadsheet that said in year 1 we would have a million simultaneous users. So on the engineering team, we were really excited. Well, that means we need to build a serious heavyweight architecture to support those million users when they show up. And of course, when they didn't show up, not only have we wasted a lot of time on an architecture that no one was going to use, even worse, we'd lost the agility necessary to change that architecture because it was this big heavyweight monstrosity that was patent pending but ultimately useless. And shadow belief number three, that advancing the plan is progress. When we're in conditions of extreme uncertainty and we don't know what to do, it's natural to just kind of fall back on what we can see and measure. And the easiest thing to see and measure in a startup is milestones. So in startup number one, we were very rigorous about making sure that we hit deadlines and we did what we said we were going to do and we made the plan. And there's a reason why we were able to execute that good plan.
0: So Alberto, does this sound familiar? Were you a brilliant founder or a crazy person?
1: Boy, I will it sounds so familiar. It's so painful when Eric speaks, you know, I have pretty much the same story. In fact, 5 years and 40 million dollars in his case, 5 years, 25 million dollars in our case, but you know, who's counting, you know, 15 million dollars between friends. The point is that we we thought we were building the right product. It wasn't a matter of execution. He executed on his plan. We executed on our plan. It's just that when we launched it, we realized that our plan was written in thoughtland. It was a fantasy. Most business plans are works of fiction. And I know because I've written a few, they're complete fantasies. So out of my experience, I came up with this mantra that has become important to me. And that's what I teach to people right now. Make sure you're building the right it before you build it right. Because as Eric has told you, as probably any entrepreneur will tell you, the challenge is very rarely that you cannot build what you set out to build, is that you build it beautifully, execute to the plan, but you end up building the wrong thing.
0: Okay, we've teed it up. We've heard about your successes and your failures. We've heard from other entrepreneurs who've talked about their failures. You've gone to great lengths over the last few years, really codifying a process for figuring out how to avoid big failures. And I love the fact that you've coined a new term that has become very much a part of my vocabulary. Can you describe it?
1: So the process is called pretotyping. And as the name suggests, it's something that you do before you build an actual prototype. Actually, the genesis of the word, the original term was pretendotyping. Because if you can pretend to, to have built something and see how people respond to it, and if they don't respond as you expected, you don't actually have to go on and actually build the thing, which is a problem that both Eric and I had. We built this thing, uh, we made it work fully, and then we realized, whoops, people don't seem interested in it. So what I started to think is, can I come up with a set of techniques where I can pretend that I've built something to see how people respond? Because what we do is we put the cart uh, ahead of the horse in these cases, right? We build, we build, assuming that the market wants what we build, and then we launch it and it's not there. But most of the investment is not the going to market, it's building those things. So I thought, can we actually flip things around? And that is the essence of prototyping.
0: Okay, so uh, can you tell us, how you might do a prototype i mean can you give us some examples
1: perfect so one of my favorite ones is the the pound pilot so the pound pilot was an incredibly uh, successful the first successful personal digital assistant pda jeff hawkins uh, a brilliant inventor, his previous company, Grid Computers, failed. They tried to have the, one of the first uh, uh, iPad devices, and it didn't work. So by the way, here's a third story, three entrepreneurs, three stories of brilliant people that can build what they said they were going to build, and then they launch it, and it doesn't work. So after being burned the same way that Eric and I were burned, uh, Jeff Hawkins thought, okay, I want to build this small thing so it can fit in the pocket. So his question was not, can I build it? Because he knew he could build it. His main question was, would I actually use it? And so he did something very clever. He went in his garage, he cut a little block of wood that would have the same form factor as a pound pallet, put some papers, leaves, and designed a user interface on them. And then he carried it with himself for a few weeks, pretending that it was wor- would actually work. So Tina, do you mind playing along with me? So I'm Jeff Hawkins. I come to you and ask you, Hey, Tina, are you free for lunch next week?
0: Sure, let me look up in my calendar. Yeah, and sure, you, I am.
1: Great, what day is good for you?
0: Uh, Wednesday.
1: So while you look at your calendar, I pull out this block of wood with some paper sleeves on top of it, and I tap with a chopstick. Nothing is working, right? Just a block of wood. And I say, great, Wednesday is fine for me. And then I put this block of wood back in my pocket. So you look at me and you think... Jeff Hawkins is crazy, he's tapping on a block of wood. In fact, what he's doing, he pretended to have a device that worked the way he meant it to work before he actually built it. So after doing this for three weeks, he learned a couple of important lessons. First of all, he had the right form factor. This would carry in his pocket all the time. Secondly, he learned most of the time I would use it to do four things. Appointments, uh, an address book, to-do list, and maybe a little notepad. At the same time, Apple was coming up with the Newton that did all kinds of things, very sophisticated, and it was a flop. So, this is an example of prototyping. He pretended to have built something to see if he would actually use it. Then he knew he could build it. In fact, he built it, he launched it, it was incredibly successful.
0: So I know that there are other tools that you use for other types of innovations. What if I were a restaurant or what if, you know, so it wasn't something that I needed a form factor or what if it was a process that was going to take place in some company? How could I prototype those types of things?
1: Well, give me a specific example.
0: So let's say I was running a restaurant and I wanted to introduce a new uh, recipe and I wanted to know if people might like it.
1: Perfect. My, my favorite example in the restaurant is Mac Spaghetti. Now, as an Italian, the concept offends me. You know, uh, overcooked pasta with a ketchup sauce in a styrofoam cup is not my idea of spaghetti. But here's the idea. Other ideas at McDonald could have failed. Like, think about Chicken McNuggets. You know, whoever came up with that. That was innovative, right? Nobody had done something like that. So before we think that's a terrible idea, we think, well... Let's pretotap it. And what's the simplest form of pretotyping in this case? It's called the fake door. You don't need to cook any pasta. No spaghetti will be harmed in the process, right? All you need to do is put on the menu Max spaghetti. Then when people come in, you ask them, they order a burger, and you ask them, "Wouldn't you rather try Max spaghetti instead? It's new?" And then you watch the responses and you keep track. So at the end of the day, you say you ask 100 people, two of them said yes. That's not enough to make it to the menu, but if 30 of them were willing to try, then you may think, okay, Max Spaghetti probably has a chance, and you can do more experiments to see if actually they would continue to order it after the first time. But the point is that the first experiment, you got data in less than two hours, right? At lunchtime, before lunchtime, you thought, would people order Max Spaghetti? You put it on the menu. After lunchtime, two hours later, you have a piece of data. 100 people were offered Max Spaghetti. Two people decided to have it, or maybe the result is 30 people, I don't know, but you get to data very, very fast. Time to data is key to failing fast.
0: So, in the situation with Jeff Hawkins, he had a data set of one himself. In this situation with Mech Spaghetti, you might be in one or two stores. How much data do you need, and how do you know when you've got enough data?
1: It depends on the idea. So, uh, another great uh, prototyper. Elon Musk, uh, as we all know, Elon, if you want to buy a Tesla these days, you need to put out, put down a $5,000 deposit before one is actually built for you, which is a way of getting skin in the game, make sure that you actually want it. So for a product like Max Spaghetti, you know that the numbers are pretty big, right? Out of a hundred people, you want at least 10% of them to order it, which means that your original sample size can actually be small, could be a hundred people right? For something like Tesla that costs $80,000, you probably don't expect 10% of the people to buy. So you need a slightly larger sample size. But most people usually make an error. They think they need a lot of data. In fact, if it's a consumer product, probably if you start with 100 people in your town today, you can get that data right now.
0: Are there some things that you can't prototype? Can you prototype everything?
1: I would say you can prototype Pretty much everything. I've yet to run into something that I cannot prototype because let me explain. There is, there is a continuum of investment. At zero, you just have an idea and it just exists in your mind so you don't do anything about it. At the other spectrum, there is, you've built the full-blown products and you launch it. So between those two points, there are infinite steps that you can take. And so far, after having worked on hundreds of prototypes, it seems to me almost inconceivable that there isn't a small experiment you can do to validate one of the hypotheses, uh, that it's much simpler than just building the whole thing and testing all of the hypotheses at once. Because here's the key, Tina. Uh, For an idea to be successful, a lot of things have to line up, right? The market wants them. You must be able to build it. You must be able to make money at it, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So it's a series of hypotheses. If you identify one that you can falsify very quickly, you're going to fail much cheaper. Cheaper. So since most ideas have multiple hypotheses attached, and some of them must be simpler to validate than others, I put it to you that prototyping—you can pretty much prototype anything.
0: So let's go back in time, the wayback machine, when you. We're starting this company that ultimately failed. What advice would you have given to yourself at that time?
1: If I could go back in time, I would not spend two years to build the first version of the product. I would spend maybe two months, perhaps with some prototyping techniques, two weeks. And instead of spending all this time writing complicated software that does this artificial intelligence, maybe we would use human beings to simulate the intelligence in this product. So instead of having a program to do something, I would have a human being doing the same thing. And we would have learned very quickly, maybe in six months where it took us five years to learn. Exactly the same lesson.
0: So I know, though, that there are a lot of people who are really anxious about showing their ideas really early for a couple of reasons. One is they're afraid someone's going to steal their idea. But even more importantly, they have a big vision of what the product's going to look like when it's done and finished and polished and beautiful. And they don't want to show something early and raw because they don't think it accurately represents the vision they have. How do you get around that?
1: Well, the the first thing I would point out is that most of the time, their vision is wrong. Think about it. Why do most startups fail? Even most VC backed startup. It's not that they didn't have a vision. They actually wrote a business plan. The VCs bought into that business plan. It's just that they were victim of the law of failure. And I came up with this law because uh, it's become a, a big part of my repertoire. The law of failure states this, most new ideas will fail even if they're competently executed and when you know that you're going to be failing most of the time you want to make sure you don't invest too much time on it as far as people stealing your ideas the only situations where i see other companies stealing uh, a startup idea is when that idea is proven successful because if you take 100 entrepreneurs in a room nobody wants to even hear your idea they want to build their things it is only when you're successful that you have to worry about people stealing the idea
0: So here's what I'm taking from this. People really deeply need to understand that failure is a very natural part of the innovation process and that if you're not failing, you're probably not innovating along the way.
1: Uh, absolutely. In fact, I would say failure is non-linear. By the way, let me give you this example. This is a a, a nice image. Uh, If you've seen Game of Thrones, you know, at the beginning, there are these little dragons, and at the beginning, they're really cute, right? They they have these little flames that are like zippo lighters. Uh, You want to pet them. You're not afraid of them, right? So at the very beginning, failure is like that, completely harmless, even cute. It's just like if you keep going ahead and refusing to actually touch the ground, refusing to deal with the market, the dragons get bigger and bigger. So, and instead of a Zippo, they're gonna incinerate you and your entire company and, uh, and everybody that's involved with it. So failure is good, and pe- everybody talks about, oh, failing fast is good, failure is good. But let me tell you exactly why. This is a scientific explanation. Human beings and uh, startups are systems. They're living organisms. And living organisms need stress to actually grow and get stronger and succeed so when you have little failures it's the equivalent of jumping from a one foot stool to the ground you're not going to hurt yourself you can do that a hundred times however if you wait and you jump you know you, you build this thing it's like jumping from say six feet maybe you can sprain an ankle you keep building like we did for five years it's like jumping for 30 from 30 feet so if you fall you're lucky if you break a leg you completely uh you can kill if you do that So small failures are very small stresses. You can do them all day long and they will make you stronger. Just like with the bones, right? If you don't don't put stress on your bones, they will weaken and they will break. So little failures actually are good for the system.
0: A lot of people think you could do this with surveys or focus groups. Why can't I just do a survey or a focus group? Why do I have to do a prototype?
1: Well, what a, what a great question, right? Here's the problem with survey and focus group. There is no skin in the game, right? There is a famous uh, a famous story, is Crystal Pepsi. A Pepsi Cola, who definitely knows how to make uh, soft drinks, had an idea for Crystal Pepsi. Same Pepsi taste, same Pepsi bubble, just without colorings and chemicals. And you can be sure that they did focus groups and you can be sure that they did marketing, but then they launched it and it failed. Why? Because there was no skin in the game. Here's what happens in a focus group. Let's, let, let's have a focus group, all right? So, hey, Tina, I'm building this new amazing bicycle. Uh, it's solar-powered, and it's going to cost $2,000, but you know, it will last a long time. Uh, is this something you would consider buying?
0: Sure, sounds interesting.
1: Great. Uh, so you've given me an opinion. I've given you an idea. You've given me an opinion. You put no skin in the game right? So this is how people end up investing in ideas. They get a lot of opinion. Oh, this is great. So they they go ahead, they build it, and then when it actually comes to buy, nobody buys it. And that's what I think uh, Elon Musk does great with Tesla. He didn't just ask people, hey, here's a very cool $120,000 all-electric two-seater. Would you buy it? If people said, yes, I would buy, he asked them for a $5,000 deposit. See, the opinion... Is just no skin in the game, but a $5,000 deposit is a lot of skin in the game. And to me, that's the difference between focus groups and actual prototyping. You have an artifact and you use that artifact to collect not opinions, but data. And data has to have some skin in the game.
0: Wow. Alberto, thank you so much for sharing these ideas with us. It's clear that failure is a critical part. Of the innovation process, and that these experiments or prototypes not only teach us to fail fast, but they provide incredible opportunities for learning. I hope that all of you have enjoyed this podcast, which is our prototype of this new series. Stay tuned for the next edition, which will certainly benefit from what we've learned from this experiment. This podcast was brought to you by the Stanford Technology Ventures Program. You can find additional podcasts, videos, and articles at ecorner.stanford.edu. And also follow us on Twitter at ecorner.